industry and the FCC, who very much wants to change these rules, which are from 1996, I mean, they're 23 years old, they can't get on board with the idea that if they can just give up just a little bit, some crumbs from the table, that everyone will benefit from that. And as such, here we are. We're waiting to find out when, you know, the clock's ticking on whether or not the FCC will try to go to the Supreme Court. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reismandel, and I'm one of your hosts and producers. And today we're talking about the FCC again because the Federal Communications Commission, which oversees uh, broadcasting in the United States, along with lots of other uh, communication sector, has been very busy. Um, we talked a lot about some things having to do directly with radio last week. Well, also what's happened is there's been some more action with regard to ownership policy and the and and something if you've been listening to Radio Survivor for quite some time you've heard quite a bit about uh, but in short the Third Circuit Court of Appeals uh, has been reviewing the ownership policy set forth by the Federal Communications Commission for quite some time and uh, something rather dramatic has happened in the last couple of weeks. And so when that happens, you know who we turn to? We turn to Professor Christopher Terry, who is a professor of media law at the University of Minnesota. Chris joins us from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Glad to talk to you again, Chris. How are you doing today, Paul? We're doing well. Uh, We're recording this on Friday the 13th. I hope that's not a bad omen. (laughs) anything here i only just pointed out because it's kind of funny um so chris what just happened what did the third circuit court of appeals do to uh fcc ownership policy well what it did isn't radically new uh what it did is it slapped the fcc down and sent the agency packing So to put it into context, what happened, we have to go back a few weeks. In fact, the last time I was on the show, I believe, we were talking about how the agency had uh, tried to put a new set of rules on the books in 2017. That decision by the FCC went in front of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals and incorporated some changes to media ownership rules as well as the FCC's latest attempt at a quote-unquote minority ownership program, in this case the incubator. And the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, as it has done three times previously, remanded that entire decision to the agency in its entirety and basically And when they say remanded them, it, it, it means uh, we, we reject it and try again, basically, right? That's what remanding right. it means. Uh, and the FCC has had that happen to them over media ownership rules three other times in 20, 2004, 2011, and 2016. This is just the latest go-around. But what the FCC did is it coordinated its response to what the court had said back in October with the National Association of Broadcasters. And both the FCC and the people who represent the industry the FCC is in charge of regulating, they uh, got together and each filed a request for a review by the full panel of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, a process called N-Bank Review. So the first time a decision goes to an appeals court, uh, circuit court in the federal system, it's heard by a three-judge panel. Um, your first rate of appeal or your first right of appeal when you don't like the decision 
uh, of the three-judge panel is to make an appeal to the full panel, and that is what the FCC and the NAB did. Now, they worked together on the appeal, although they did not file them to, at the same in the same uh, filing. They each filed their own appeal. In what amounts to almost record time, uh, as far as I've been able to tell in terms of an FCC decision, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals absolutely denied uh, the ability of the FCC to bring an end bank review. None of the judges that heard the original case uh, wanted to rehear it, and there was not a majority on the panel for a rehearing of with a full panel review. Now, this is quite interesting because the FCC had said pretty clearly that they would win on an end bank review if they could just get past the panel of three judges that have heard all of the media ownership decisions in the Third Circuit, the FCC was absolutely convinced that they would win this time. They were all over media talking about it. They were all over. They were strutting around and talking about it. And they're not even going to have a chance to make that case. And shortly after that decision came down, what really happened that matters is that an issue of mandate was uh, handed down by the court as well, which starts the clock ticking on the FCC's ability to appeal this to the Supreme Court. And that's a pretty big deal because we're already a couple weeks in here and uh, they the FCC only has 90 days to try to get the Supreme Court to hear this case. And with the 2018 review already in progress, the FCC may just try to run off the clock on this until the next administration, whether that be a Trump or some other Democratic administration. And so to put this in perspective then, what has happened is that in the, this last at-bat of the FCC trying to update and, and, and in quotes, modernize its media ownership rules uh, has once again been tossed out by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. But this time around, uh, the, the full circuit, is that eight judges who's in the full circuit? There are nine. Nine, in the third nine circuit, judges in, in, in the Third Circuit. They said, no, we're not hearing this appeal. We threw it out. You got to go back, and and the reasons why if we can just quickly summarize is, is they basically said you know you're you, you you're proposing changes without proper evidence, without really demonstrating uh, how these changes would would positively affect uh, our media environment, basically television and radio in particular, but also with some effect on newspapers. Uh, you know what is one of the things that I I haven't I think properly take assessed in all of the, my thinking about this process in all of these years and something which you pointed out last time we talked to you was, you know, in part, you know, as somebody who really uh, has been myself a critical of media consolidation since the time I learned about such an idea 20 some years ago in the nineties, I've always been critical of the effects that it has, the, the delocalization, uh, often the loss of local jobs, the homogenization of the programming, things like this. I've been a critic. And so since most of these actions that the FCC has taken have, have been generally leaning towards, uh, allowing more consolidation rather than less, I, you know, I, I often view personally, uh, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals turning away these changes as, as a victory. But you pointed out that through all of this back and forth, there's also lost opportunities, right? That, 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 there, that 
what what we end up with though are media ownership rules that are 20 plus years old and maybe don't reflect the current needs. Can you can you elaborate on that? What is what is a lost opportunity that that has happened here uh, in this process of the FCC failing to to provide proper evidence to justify uh, its changes to media ownership rules? Well, sure. Then the the easiest one is the one that the dispute is largely over these days, is that the FCC has not had a functional minority ownership policy on the books for almost 20 years. And that hurts um, minority viewpoints. Women and minorities are control an insignificant amount of stations in the United States, broadcast stations, I mean. And we, as a society, suffer at the loss of that. The FCC's inability to come up with a functional minority ownership program that can pass fundamental judicial review has paralyzed this. And it's important to understand this evidence issue because that is what this is about. As much as the FCC would like to make it about something else, nothing has changed since 2004 when the Third Circuit Court of Appeals first got involved in this process in the first Prometheus Radio Project decision. The fundamental issue at the core of each of the four decisions is that the FCC cannot support the policy ideas or proposals it brings forward with evidence that suggests the policy will either A, work, or B, generate any positive benefits for the goals the commission says the policy is supposed to create. Competition in the form of economic competition, localism in the form that your station is supposed to provide you with local news information and content, and diversity, a range of independent viewpoints that are antagonistic to each other. And on all three points, sort of the goal number one, goal number two, and goal number three of the policy, the FCC can't demonstrate that it works, and it continues to fail. Now, a while back, and one of the important parts about a lost opportunity, a while back when we were talking about this, I pointed out that the Third Circuit had had just about enough of this from the FCC and had threatened to basically burn the structure down to the house. I believe the metaphor they used was roasting the pig in the house. (laughs) That's basically what has happened here. When the court acted in the initial decision back in October, or at the, excuse me, at the end of September, what they did was... They threw out the last two FCC attempts to come up with a new set of rules. So under Tom Wheeler in 2016, there was a set of rules that said we're not going to change any rules. And we're basically not really going to come up with a minority ownership policy. And then in Ajit Pai's time as chair in 2017, they came up with a new set of rules which basically repealed most of the television rules in order to move forward what then was the Sinclair Tribune merger. And then in 2018, they came up with a minority ownership program that actually is supposed to create diversity, but actually led to more consolidation. And the court put them back on their heels. But in doing so, the court remanded the entirety of all of those orders, 2016, 2017, 2018, to the commission. That sets us back functionally to 2004. The FCC has not made a media ownership rule change since the 1996 Telecommunications Act. And arguably, they didn't make those because those directives came from Congress. 
If you look at the Telecommunications Act, 1996, those are the rules that are still on the books. Those are the rules that the FCC has to enforce. Those are the rules that the FCC has been trying to change, but has been unable to change because it can't support that those rules are actually good rules. And the court already knows, the Third Circuit already knows that this issue will be back in front of them because the FCC has a proceeding going on right now, launched about a year ago today in 2018, that is the latest of the rule reviews. In fact, the only rule that has been functionally changed in that 25 years or that 23 years is that rule that changed the definition of radio markets over to how Arbitron defined them. And Arbitron isn't even around anymore as a company. So we've lost out on 20 years of allowing our radio industry to adapt because the FCC cannot get a new rule on the book. That's bad for industry. They've certainly made their point clear on that. But it's also bad for us because it as the media industry changes in this country, there'd be room for new kinds of innovation if we could put those stations in the hands of people who might take a different approach to them. We get the most diversity from single and double and dual-owned stations in this country right now, and we've put into place a policy that keeps us from getting that. And the FCC, by failing, actually continues to fail to operate in a way that allows us to get those stations back in the hands of people. So Christopher Terry, you're, you're professor of media law at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about media ownership and talking about how the Third Circuit Court of Appeals has tossed out pretty much everything the FCC has tried to do since 2004. And you identified basically three values, which media ownership rules are, are there and intended to promote. You said there's competition. There's said there's localism and there's diversity, right? And so it's important, I think, to highlight that these are standards, right? These are ideas. These are values which have been identified by by Congress that media ownership rules should help promote. And and one of the big ones you called out is diversity, diversity of ownership, specifically around minorities and women owning broadcast properties, owning television stations, owning radio stations. And we've seen, you know, by any measure, we've seen that their that proportion of ownership go down rather than go up in the intervening years. And I know that, you know, playing devil's advocate here, you know, one of the arguments we hear from uh, the commercial broadcast industry is that, well, look, uh, you can't just look at broadcasting uh, radio and television uh, as in, 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 a, in a sort of, uh, you know, in isolation. You know, we've got uh, podcasting, we've got satellite radio, we've got over-the-top television, we've got streaming television, we've got internet media and all of this. Uh, and you need to take that into account uh, in, in terms of, of judging uh, ownership and diversity. And if you take, you know, that into account, well, diversity doesn't, doesn't look so bad. Um, but it sounds like that argument, which, which you know, some, sometimes I think prima facie sounds pretty good. I think a lot of folks think that the internet has opened up a lot of opportunities. Um, it seems like they haven't actually been able to, to sort of prove it. Is that, is that, is my understanding right? Yeah. And remember that the FCC's jurisdiction over the internet is limited, mm -hmm. right? I mean, they're not in the business of regulating internet content as much as they might like to or not like to be. That's really not what the FCC is in charge of. 
they're in charge of managing our broadcast system. And our broadcast system largely depends on diversity of, uh, of audience. And right now, the FCC is actually trying to pass rules that will eliminate some diversity of audience by eliminating diversity of programming options. And it's a weird partnership that the FCC has gotten into uh, with the NAB and the others because the NAB and the and sort of some of the other media organizations that are out there would actually probably do better to ditch the FCC, partner up with the citizen petitioners, split the baby and cut the FCC out of the loop at this point. The FCC is hurting everyone. It's hurting the citizen petitioners, the groups like Prometheus, National Hispanic Media Coalition, other uh, people who've been parties to this case for a long time. But it's also hurting the industry. I mean, when this case went to oral argument uh, earlier this year, back over the summer, the industry lawyers didn't even really try to defend the FCC because they knew the FCC was going to lose. The last lawyer who spoke at oral argument was one of the industry lawyers, and she was just trying to mitigate the damage by trying to limit the remand. That was the argument she made. She never made an argument that the rules were of any good or that the rule changes should be upheld. So at some point, the industry is going to have to get on board that the FCC isn't doing them any favors by not being able to do this. And why isn't the FCC able to do this? This is the part that's the head scratcher, right? Uh, they have teams of economists. They have teams of researchers. They're very experienced bureaucrats there. And I mean, and, and I use that term actually uh, with, I mean, with respect, right? Who, who've been working in this sector for their careers deeply understand uh, our media environment and the relationship of, of, of economics to it. Why, why is the FCC unable to come up with rules that it can, that it can justify? Well, there appears to be no clear explanation for that. Um, their argument for it is, is that it's really hard to do. So what the court is saying is not that the rules are invalid, it's that you have to show us that the rules work. And those are two different things. The FCC is very reluctant to test its rules in a way that can show them to work. Now we know that at least at some point when they tried to do this 15 years ago, it didn't work out and they had to cover up the fact that it occurred. But the FCC's current argument is, is that it literally cannot produce the evidence that the court is asking of it. It says it is impossible to produce. And so what kind of evidence well, would this be? I mean, what is what is it that's unobtainium here? Well, what the court mostly is arguing with the FCC over in terms of evidence is, what did the media look like before you implemented these rules? And what does it look like now? And, and you're talking specifically around, around like, uh, let's say, uh, ownership by minority and women, right? Like that that's, that's one of the, the big ones that they want to see evidence about. Right, but that's the core element of the diversity right. prong, right? I mean, and that's that's the part the FCC has gotten st strung up on. If you can't prove, if you, but by that I mean the FCC, if the FCC can't prove that the rules have been positive for viewpoint diversity by women and minorities, it's proof that the it's it's very much proof that the entire structure is bad and should be remanded back to Congress at some level. But that's only part of the story. Part of the story is that the FCC doesn't want to do this. In fact, part of the problem is that the FCC thinks it would be really hard. 
They have argued multiple times in both in filings and in oral argument that they can't get around an, uh, a decision called Adirond construction, which limits the ability of the federal government to favor certain groups. Now, that decision is a strict scrutiny decision, which is the highest level of judicial review. But the FCC hasn't even tried. And why that really matters is to come up with a policy that would directly challenge Adirond, because broadcasters aren't ever judged under a strict scrutiny review by the courts. That has never, ever happened because broadcasting as a limited resource with a scarce number of stations is treated under a much lower test. But I think that would put paid on some of the FCC's problems because it would allow them to get around the thing they've been arguing over for about, well, going on 10 years now. So Adirant dis- construction, is, a, is, a, is that a Supreme Court decision? Yes, okay. it is. And, and that's- Adirant Constructors versus Pena. Okay, and and that regards uh, the ability of the government to to uh, favor certain uh, classifications of of what uh, you know what what how do, racial you know. or okay. gender categories would be included. Okay, the FCC used the Adirond decision originally to get rid of its minority tax certificate which was its original minor well the most recent functional minority ownership program that it had and has since tried to implement minority ownership programs that don't actually favor minorities or ensure that the stations would go to minorities or women the most recent program the incubator program was a program that would allow station groups to consolidate above the limits generated by congress and provided no guarantee that the incubated stations, the handed off stations, would actually end up in the hands of women or minorities. There was no, no, no provision. It was sort of a wish and a prayer. Here, it was more. It was more than a wish and a prayer. And the FCC just downright admitted that they said, "Well, you know, it's, it's likely." Well, that's not. There's no evidence that it was likely. Just like there was no evidence that. The programs that the FCC has implemented since 1996 have benefited women, minority, or viewpoint diversity overall. There's no evidence, right? It's not. It's easy for me to argue against what the FCC has done because we know it doesn't work. But what the problem is, is that the FCC puts itself in a position, well, actually the Telecommunications Act puts the FCC in a position, that it not only has to come up with evidence for rules that it wants to put on the books, But because of Section 202H, something we've talked about in some of the other times I've been on, little provision of the 1996 Telecommunications Act requires the FCC to defend existing rules as if they were new every four years. And the FCC has just boggled that all up to all all degree. I think we get one more round. If the Supreme Court doesn't grant cert in this case, assuming the FCC were to appeal... You get one more round before the Third Circuit ends the entire thing. That they just tear it all down, declare all the rules invalid, and send it back to the send it back to Congress. That's my prediction. Is that a bad thing? <laughs> Given well, all of what's happened here, or 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 is that just is that uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Well, I don't know that it's good or bad. It has the potential to be both. A recognition that our media system is radically different than it was in 1996 might drive Congress to act. 
But Congress doesn't seem to be in a position right now to make huge, you know, titanic level decisions that would be required like this. Telecommunications Act was debated for a long time before it was put onto the books. But beyond that, I don't know that Congress understands this issue well enough to, to get to the gist of it. And so it would be good to revisit whether or not these rules are valid and whether or not they actually are generating um, some sort of benefit. But I think it would be hard for the Third Circuit to take that step. But I don't see any other out here. The FCC isn't going to magically come up with the evidence that the Third Circuit wants. It has to come up with new proposal here at some point in the next two years uh, as, re as it relates to the 2018 review, quadrennial review. So we're headed for, you know, assuming the Supreme Court doesn't interrupt this process at some level, the next likely outcome is to have the entire house burn down with the pig inside in when the 2018 decision goes up to the Third Circuit, which is where it will go because the Third Circuit panel, the original panel, retains jurisdiction over future media ownership decisions. So looking at these FCC media ownership decisions from sort of my perspective of somebody who, who you know, I'm aware of it, I, I pay attention, I don't have uh, your deep expertise, Chris, um, you know, what it always looks like to me, what it keeps looking like to me is, you know, they want their cake and eat it too, meaning that they, that they, or they want to put the square peg in a round hole. They want to basically have these outcomes where uh, ultimately we're loosening the ownership restrictions, right? We're allowing uh, one, a large radio owner to own even more stations. We want to allow uh, a large television station owner to own even more stations. And we want to do it under the cover of, well, this will increase localism. This will increase uh, ownership diversity with regard to women and minorities, and they they want to do it under those guys, and 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 it's sort of like they, they they pray and they hope that that will be an outcome, but they haven't been able to show that previous <laughs> loosening of the rules developed that outcome, right? It seems like this it it's it's almost it's ideological that they believe this will happen, um, and but the court says ideology alone doesn't wash. Is that is that an effective summation of what's gone on here? Yeah, I think so. I mean, part of the problem is that this process has dragged out and the FCC won't basically admit that it had a problem. You know, when we talk about net neutrality, you know, that process was messy too. Started by a Republican, a uh, Republican-led commission in 2005, went through a couple of pretty nasty losses in court in the Comcast and Verizon decision. And then... You know, the FCC basically admitted it didn't want to do what it ended up doing, which was move the rules over to the Title II program and, you know, reclassify broadband. And in the process, it, it basically admitted it had no other viable way to get net neutrality rules through the courts, in this case, the D.C. Circuit. And it pushed, you know, it, it, it finally, it, you know, pulled up its pants, took an extra drink, and then buckled down and moved things over to Title II. We need the FCC to do that. We need the FCC to admit that this policy, while well-intended, I mean, let's not be wrong about it, it was well-intended at the time, has not produced the results that it was intended to produce, and that it either needs the authority to uh, revisit the rules top to bottom, 
or it needs new directions from Congress, or, as it could have done at any point along this path, come up with rules that move away from the idea that uh, less restriction is better. Most viable radio operations in the United States right now, the ones that are the most diverse and the most viable, are smaller, Spanish-orientated, Spanish-language stations. They're making decent money, and they're being able to be run as local stations fairly well. And they're mostly mom-and-pop or mom-pop-and-a-son kind of operations where there's one, two, or three stations in a cluster. That's it. And, you know, that's the way forward for radio. It, it kind of returns to radio's roots and makes radio viable entity again without, you know, massive restructuring of the system. It could work very well if we let it. But the FCC has got to finally come to sort of have that, that moment where they're like, yep, you know, we tried really hard to do this for a long time, but it's not going to work. And, you know, that's, that's not a moment that we've, we've crossed yet. But I think the Third Circuit's going to put it on the FCC pretty soon here. The voice you just heard is Professor Christopher Terry. Uh, he is a professor of media law at the University of Minnesota. You're listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reismandel, and you can learn more about anything we're talking about on today's show in our show notes. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. And certainly if you have any comments about anything you heard on today's show, we'd love to hear from you. We always love listener mail. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. You know, Chris, I wanted to follow up on that point you just made about uh, this class of stations that, that you see as viable and successful, right? These Spanish language stations that are that are principally owned in small clusters. And by cluster, you mean co-owned stations, uh, you know, rather than owning hundreds of stations. These companies often, you said mom and pop operations, family owned, family run often. Um Let's, you know, we, we're talking a little bit about, we've talked so much about what, what the FCC has tried to do uh, or how it's tried to meet these objectives like diversity and failed. I want to ask you, what kind of policy could the FCC put in place that might succeed in promoting ownership diversity and therefore, you know, programming diversity? What, what could the FCC do within... Uh, the mandate it has from Congress, the rules that exist in the Telecommunications Act, what could it do within this structure to help promote diversity? Well, the thing is, is that the FCC was was pretty close to where they wanted to be with the incubator program that they proposed. They wanted to have existing media organizations sort of hand off an underperforming station and sort of mentor new owners, new entrants to run that station. And I didn't really object to the consolidation that that allowed for. So an existing group has six stations. They filter one off in Milwaukee to a new owner. They mentor that new owner. They help them with technical startup and programming and operations and production and all those things, which is was actually a fairly inspired idea. But the part of that, that, that program that was missing was that there was no there was no program no policy no procedure in place to put those stations into the hands of people that would actually allow them to be diversified and right now i mean there's just a recent study that said that classic rock is still the most common format averages 3 to 5 stations a market that are carrying classic rock that's not diversity it's not 
So take one of those stations, spin it off, make sure it ends up in the hands of a group that will logically operate it in a diverse fashion. And then after that period of mentorship, evaluate the situation and say to the, the legacy owner, you know what? You earn the right to get another station in a different market. Approve those mergers on a one-to-one -one basis and move forward. But So the incubator program wasn't uh, a bad idea. It was badly implemented, which ironically is exactly what the FCC has done on media ownership. It's not a bad idea. It was just poorly executed. When it comes to the minority formats in the United States, almost half are operated by people who own only a single station. More than half are operated by people who own two or more stations. So if you want diversity, spin some of those underperforming stations off from the bigger companies. Make sure they end up in the hands of women and minority groups or other underrepresented groups, however you define that. And then go, move forward, right? Everybody benefits when the media system is more diverse, right? And so the FCC had the right idea, but they, they had the right idea for the wrong reason. What they were trying to do was allow larger station groups to spin off underperforming properties so that they could get a better property in a different market, higher-ended market. It wasn't going to work. It was the right idea, but the wrong implementation. So if you want it to work, put a provision into what the incubator program was designed to do. Create these startups and make sure the stations end up in the hands of women and minorities. And as I said, the FCC believes it can't do that. It, it just it, There's no way it could possibly do that because of Adirond, the Adirond decision. But there's, as I said, there's no evidence to support the idea that Adirond would apply to broadcasting because Adirond is a strict scrutiny case and, and broadcasting is not strict scrutiny under judicial review. And, and just to kind of to put a make that point a little bit clearer to people who are less familiar with uh, Supreme Court procedure and case law. Um, by strict scrutiny, right, you mean that uh, the court had said in, in, in this particular case, Adiran, that, uh, you know, it requires the court to, to look at this super closely and, 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 they, and the government has to very strongly justify preferring say one contractor over another. Um, and that's, you know, out in the world of, 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 of like commercial building, et cetera. Right. And, and in broadcasting, you know, the Supreme court has ruled time and again, that strict scrutiny doesn't apply. Meaning the fact that there are, there is a relatively few stations out there, few spots in the dial for television or radio justifies the government being more interventionist in order to pursue uh, goals that are that are presumed to be in the public interest, such as diversity, localism, and and, um, and uh, competition, and I think probably uh, the decision that uh, illustrates this most to me, and I, I like to you know to double check me on this, is probably FCC v. Pacifica, where the which is the decision in which the Supreme Court said that uh, the Federal Communications Commission may regulate speech in broadcasting for the purpose of uh, essentially protecting children from indecent content uh you know and that's that's the rule in place which sort of 
ostensibly says the seven dirty words, uh, you know, can't be aired uh, from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. on radio or on television. If the FCC had viewed uh, broadcasting to be subject to strict scrutiny, uh, it would have turned out differently, right? It would have turned out that the uh, the court would probably have said, no, the FCC can't regulate speech in broadcasting at all, in the same way that the government is not allowed to regulate the speech in a newspaper or a magazine, or, or to that extent on the internet, where strict scrutiny would apply. Is my summary about correct there? Yeah, but it's not just Pacifica. It's Red Lion, which is the case that right. upheld the Fairness Doctrine. Yeah, I'm just talking about the one that, that probably people yeah. understand the most and are most no, familiar No, strict with. scrutiny yeah. is the highest level of judicial review of government action, and it's very hard for the government to meet a strict scrutiny case. The FCC is absolutely right about that. What's different is, is that broadcasting isn't strict scrutiny. It's rational basis. The FCC only has to demonstrate that there's a rational policy, that the policy has benefits, and that the policy will achieve those benefits. That's it. That's all it has to do to meet a rational basis review. And every time a content-based decision has come up in front of the Supreme Court dealing with the FCC, the FCC has basically won that case because of the higher societal objectives associated with diversity of viewpoint and access to information. And it's really hard for the FCC to argue that putting stations in the hands of groups that will diversify our media sphere and provide new sources of information isn't going to create a societal benefit. Now, the FCC has been very reluctant to take that approach. I don't understand why. I think it's as, as clear as day which way they should go on this. I've argued for it uh, many, many times, but I, you know, it, it isn't uh, on their radar and implausibly continues to not be on their radar as a way forward. Remember, the, the broadcasters should be signing on to this too because if the FCC could come up with a viable minority ownership program, right? a viable minority ownership program would allow the FCC to modify the rules that the broadcasters want modified. But this last go-round, it was all broadcaster and no diversity, and I don't understand why... The industry and the FCC, who very much wants to change these rules, which are from 1996, I mean, they're 23 years old, that um, they can't get on board with the idea that if they can just give up just a little bit, some crumbs from the table, that everyone will benefit from that. And as such, here we are. We're waiting to find out when, you know, the clock's ticking on whether or not the FCC will try to go to the Supreme Court for a grant of cert over the Third Circuit decision a few weeks back so uh christopher terry there were a couple other values in addition to diversity which uh are also uh, things that media ownership policy is supposed to serve uh localism and competition and would those also be served to some extent by uh these changes in the in the effect of uh, diversity policy that you've mentioned, or are there, there are other things you would have the FCC do within its current limits uh, to promote uh, localism and competition? Sure. I mean, I think the a series of independently operated stations and markets provides new programming format, certainly, that's competition, and operating a single or a small station group of operations is likely to provide localism because that's how those stations are going to make it. 
So it meets all three of the objectives. It does so without radically restructuring the media ownership situation. And the FCC can move forward on the rules it's been trying to move forward on for the longest time. It's the simplest answer. I argued for it in my Federal Communications Law Journal article a few months ago. And I continue to argue for it now that the answer to this is not actually that complicated. right? It, if you buy the FCC's argument that this data can't be generated about these old ownership reports, and I'm somewhat skeptical that that is actually true. At least the FCC should buy into the idea that this problem isn't that hard to solve if the FCC puts on its big boy pants, recognizes that it has been dodging this for a long time, and the, and the Third Circuit has called them out for dodging this problem for a long time, pretty explicitly, um, saying that the FCC has punted and dodged and and everything else about it. it there is there is a way forward. It's a very simple way, and that's to take a handful of stations, ensure they end up in the hands of groups that will operate them for diversity, and have those stations operate at the local level. Competition, localism, and diversity. There it is. There's the solution. It's not that complicated. Are there other things that could be done that would enhance uh, localism and competition, and, and, and possibly even things that... that, that uh, the National Association of Broadcasters, a lot of the large commercial broadcasters will also say, hey, maybe that's a good idea. Well, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I believe that there is. I believe the FCC has a lot more authority than it wields in terms of what it can tell broadcasters to do, uh, in terms of things that it can require them as a condition of their license. I certainly would like to see some form of community ascertainment come back, even if it's some sort of online process. And I certainly would like to see a requirement for locally produced production. I've been a strong advocate for that for a very long time. I don't think it's a great idea that we're operating a, a medium like radio remotely and at a national and regional level when it is meant to be a local medium. I'd like to see some form of provision put into place that requires stations, however they're operated, to have a minimum of three hours per week of content that's produced locally. Um, that would be a radical shakeup of the current environment, but I actually think it would really get the ball moving on some other things related to this entire problem and would be a good solution. However, when I proposed that in the Federal Communications Law Journal, um, I heard about it from some of the industry lawyers who called me up to ask me what I was thinking. So I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical that the industry would buy into that, even though it would be a really simple solution to a much bigger problem. But... Uh, for now, I'll settle for a modified incubator program that ensures the stations end up in the hands of women and minorities. And you think the three hours of local content obviously would, would serve localism in, in particular, right? Absolutely. And I my, my proposal for it didn't even require it to be news. I suggested that a music station could have three hours of locally produced music programming a week. That would actually be a dramatic upgrade from how many stations are being operated right now. And I think that might even be a surprise for some folks who assume that, you know, they hear a local local voice or a voice that they associate with the station on their local music station, whether it's classic rock or, or contemporary hit radio. And they think, well, isn't that locally produced? You've got this kind of local sounding DJ who's introducing the songs. Does that count as local programming? No. No, it's got to be locally focused programming. Local artists, small bands, right? music scene in your town. Those are things that I'm talking about. Now, I'd love it if it were informational programming, news and content, some kind of investigative reporting or public affairs. 
But I, I, I think anything that starts the movement back towards making radio a local medium helps radio in general. And I'd like to see that be part of it. And the FCC certainly has the authority to make stations do what it wants them to do when it decides to wield that. Right now, television stations are still required to carry three hours per week of educational informational programming that targets kids. Now, that's a rule that's been upheld by the Supreme Court. Why? Because it has an actual measurable benefit when it is employed. So the idea that the FCC can't do anything is always false. It's that it chooses not to. And on media ownership policy, we see the choice that it makes to not do something. And unfortunately, we've been looking at that choice for going on 23 years now, almost 24 years. So I, as a person who pays a great deal of attention to these matters, really thinks the FCC really needs to change its approach to this problem. And I mean, I would love to see the media industry benefit from changes that benefited citizens why why does it have to be one or the other and it doesn't and we could all benefit by some new thinking at the fcc and that's the voice of professor christopher terry from the university of minnesota we're talking about ownership rules uh at the fcc the federal communications commission which is the governmental body charged with overseeing our communication environment and very specifically in this case radio and television this is radio survivor we're here for the love of radio and sound my name is paul reese mandel and and we're talking about these rules because they really do affect what you hear on the radio what you see on television and specifically with regard to how local it is localism how diverse the voices are uh which we can trace back to ownership and how much competition there is uh you know and, and to some extent it's sort of the marketplace of ideas i think is what we're marking back to and, and and chris i mean you just made this uh you know sort of modest proposal and i don't really mean that in the ironic sense uh that uh you know radio stations be required to to produce three hours of local content a week uh that content wouldn't have to necessarily be public affairs or news or reporting it could be even like a local music show a local arts and culture show something like that and you said that you think that that would be not only just a burden borne by uh, radio, but that it, it could actually help. It could actually enhance radio's position. I would I would like you to to put a finer point on that. Why do you think this would help radio when when I'm sure the owners would say, well, no, that's an obligation. You're, you're we have to spend more money. We'll have to put this additional money in, and we're just barely scraping by. Uh, why do you think it would enhance uh, radio in the United States? Well, it, the the most basic level, it creates a programming option that's not currently available as newspapers dry up. Right, people need access to information that isn't uh, being produced. Most of our media has a national focus to it. Local media is where media is really suffering, and this would be an, an instant programming option that creates instant diversity in the markets where it's uh, deployed. So I think there's an instant benefit to that. But beyond that, I think there's there's a point that that goes to the industry side. You're providing content that will be useful to people who are the people you are licensed to serve. There will be an interest in this, and there is no question about that. Radio was strongest in its heydays when it was a local full-service medium. And if you go back and look at when radio was the most influential of mediums in this country, it was a full-service medium. There's no reason it can't be that way today. We just choose not to make it that. 
And large groups of people still use radio. It still touches 90% of people in the United 90% of adults in a week in the United States, according to Pew. Right? It's not that it's gone away, but make it more useful. One of the reasons newspapers lost out to the internet is they tried to get rid of extra content and they made it pointless to buy a newspaper. Radio doesn't have to be the same way. Putting this content into place, even if you have to mandate people to get the program up and started, will show that, show the industry that there's still an interest in this type of content. It doesn't even have to be that fair, that, that good, right? It doesn't have to be slick. It doesn't have to be highly produced. Produce something that makes that's relevant to people in the local market. They'll listen. I'd like to turn our attention now from media ownership rules, and you you sort of previewed a little bit earlier here in the program, Chris, uh, and talk a little bit about network neutrality, uh, because there's been a little bit of action there, and and just to kind of, uh, if you can just sort of summarize where we are with the idea of open internet rules in the United States, what's what's the current circumstance? Sure. So as we record this today, Friday the 13th, Today is the day that is the deadline for the filing of appeals in the Mozilla v. FCC decision. Mozilla is the people who make Firefox browser. They were the lead plaintiff in challenging the FCC's 2017 Open Internet Order, which repealed the Title II rules from the FCC's 2015 uh, net neutrality decision. So the FCC uh, in 2017 changed the rules. They reclassified broadband. They basically declassified it. And uh, that cha- that decision uh, was challenged in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, Mozilla, 22 states, a bunch of other public interest groups, interveners in that case. And today, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, ruled that the FCC had made a good policy decision although they disag- the panel disagreed on how good it was, um, but that they weren't going to interfere with the decision because they were sort of deferring to the FCC's judgment uh, to do so. Today is the deadline to file appeals requesting a full panel review of that case. And as we record this now, I just checked, there are three uh, petitions for a full panel review. The first is from the Digital Justice Foundation. They uh, filed their appeal, their request for appeal a few weeks ago. Their argument is that uh, the full pa- the original panel, uh, sort of misrepresented their position, and they would like to have a rehearing on those grounds. Um, the National Hispanic Media Coalition is bringing a challenge. They believe that. They the evidence that they tried to enter into the uh, open internet order docket was unfairly ignored both by the FCC at the time and during the court's review of the case. Their evidence being that there actually were significant net neutrality violations uh, occurring after the open internet order was handed down by the PI FCC. And the lead plaintiff in the case, Mozilla, the Firefox browser folks, they're bringing a challenge saying that the court's decision was uh, erroneous and they would like to have a full panel review. Um, I have no read on the tea leaves as to whether or not we'll get a full panel review. I do think it's likely, and I do think regardless of the outcome of that case, 
uh, before it's done, it will be at the Supreme Court. So that's what's happening in terms of that right now. And so the status of things right now is that the FCC has said it does not have the authority effectively to regulate an open internet, right? That's effectively what it did in 2017. The 2015 rules, this Title II meant at that point the FCC was saying, because it had been instructed to do so by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, was saying, we're going to regulate the internet like we regulate telephones, right? Hardwired telephones. Hardwired telephones, right? Or in a way that that, that, uh, electricity may be regulated in the United States. We're going to regulate it like utility, which would allow us, therefore, to say that uh, your ISP, your internet service provider, can't uh, prefer some traffic over another, can't uh, give uh, better uh, pipes, more bandwidth to Netflix or its own uh, services instead of a new upstart competitor, right? Uh, or uh, a community uh, adventure, you know, a, a new commu- a community radio station signal even. Their, uh, their, their stream can't be given lesser priority, right? You can't make those kind of judgments. Have, and, and so by regulating it as a utility, uh, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said that's what you need to do. The FCC finally did it in 2015. In 2017, they undid it and said, nope, really – we shouldn't have jurisdiction. We don't have jurisdiction. We're undoing this. And now it means that uh, there are no open internet protections, at least from a federal level. And that, and that persists. Well, the only protection that exists uh, at the federal level currently is that uh, if an ISP is going to block throttle or provide paid prioritization to certain types of data, it has to tell you that it might do so at some point in the indeterminate future. Uh, it's pr- transparency provision. As long as they e- explain that they're going to do it, they're allowed to do it. So it's basically they like don't a have terms to give you a of service why. mandate. There. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that that is currently uh, the law of the land. Though I do want to note, I, I believe in that Mozilla VFCC decision, uh, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals struck down the FCC's claim that they couldn't regulate, but that also meant that a local municipality, a state could not implement their own regulations, right? The FCC kind of wanted to say, well, we can't do it, and nobody else can either. Right, and that was sort of key to the FCC's position in the open internet order is that no one could do this. And although we can't do it as the the agency in charge, no state can do it in place of us either. And the court did strike down that provision. The most interesting part of today's filing is a really good argument, I think, that Mozilla should have made initially, um... In the case, the the D.C. Circuit relied heavily on a Supreme Court decision called Brand X, was a 2005 decision dealing with um, the Internet back then, to keep it simple. And they sort of declared that to be precedent. And because the FCC relies heavily on Brand X and the open Internet order, they, the court sort of provided deference. But what's interesting is that Mozilla brought up an argument they didn't really bring up um, the first go-round here, which is that Brand X was also interpreted by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals when it upheld the 2015 rules, and that it can't be both the uh, the victim and the aggressor in the in the case. It has to be one or the other. So either the 2015 decision was interp was uh, incorrect, the decision in U.S. Telecom which upheld the Title II rules all the way up to the Supreme Court was either incorrect or this decision is incorrect. They both can't be correct, which is what the court said in Mozilla. They said, well, the 2015 rule was okay. It was a policy decision. 
the decision to repeal the 2015 rules is also a policy decision that's entirely within the jurisdiction of the FCC. So we're not going to get involved in the policy debate. We're just going to let the FCC say that this is okay and move forward. It'll be interesting to see if the court does take this case, if they do get a full panel review, that will be a centerpiece argument, certainly for the full panel. So if I can summarize this, effectively what Mozilla is saying is that in 2015, when the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said, yes, the FCC, you may regulate an open Internet. You may you may create rules to to guarantee an open Internet. And one of the the things that we say allows you to do that is this decision, this prior court decision called Brand X. We think it does that. It, it helps to justify this. And then in most recently, the FCC told uh, the D.C. Circuit of Court of Appeals, well, we think Brand X says we can't. And then apparently the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ostensibly justified that and said, sure, it doesn't. And you're saying Brand X can't be used to both justify open Internet rules or justify the decimation of open Internet rules. It has to do one or the other. That's what Mozilla is essentially arguing. Yeah, the, the line specifically is Brand X cannot be both guardian and victim. <laughs> right. And I think that's a really good argument. It was one I was surprised they didn't bring up more in a stronger fashion on the first time the case goes around. So I'll be interested to see how that plays out. We should know within a couple weeks, uh, maybe by the end of January, whether or not there'll be a full panel review. And uh, I certainly would be happy to come on and talk about when that occurs. Uh, that would be great. And of course, why we care about an open internet here at Radio Survivor is because, again, uh, an open internet is what helps us have a diverse uh, and uh, local and national and global uh, media system, right? It allows new entrants. It's what's allowed for podcasting, for streaming radio, for new community stations, new community-oriented types of media to come on board, new types of creativity and audio and radio and sound. And it's one something that we're deeply concerned with uh, because of these reasons and why we, we track network neutrality here at Radio Survivor. Uh, Professor Christopher Terry, uh, thank you so much for uh, helping get us uh, reoriented and understand what is going on and untangle uh, both uh, what is going on with our media ownership rules and our media environment, but to really understand why it's important. And I think it's spe specifically I'm happy we had the conversation about what could be done to promote more competition, localism, and diversity. So, Chris, we look forward to talking with you again, but thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm always glad to be here. I'm looking forward to seeing you again in the next year. Thanks again to Christopher Terry and Paul Reismandel for that episode on the latest with the Federal Communications Commission and the ongoing struggle over media ownership rules. We here at Radio Survivor, we cover all of the news and history of community radio, college radio, non-commercial radio, and podcasting that serves communities. You can listen to any of our episodes, both from 2019 or all the way back into our deep past catalog as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can listen to Radio Survivor as well online at radiosurvivor.com. My name is Eric Klein. Thanks for listening.